American billionaire hedge fund manager Julian Robertson developed a strong affinity for New Zealand over his life and on his death, a gift of 15 paintings he and wife Josie Robertson had lovingly collected was gifted to the Auckland Art Gallery. The works form part of a new exhibition called The Robertson Gift, Paths Through Modernity, which is opening this week. I spoke to gallery director Kirsten Lacey and asked her about the history of the relationship between New Zealand, the gallery and the Robertsons. The story of Julian and Josie Robertson and their relationship to New Zealand goes back 45 years. First they came for a summer vacation in 1978, fell in love with New Zealand and its countryside and decided to uh, set up some investment here, largely in agriculture and following in luxury lodges and, and other kinds of endeavours, the wine industry. And then in 2006, they decided to lend a small number of paintings, but the largest number of paintings they'd ever lent from their private collection to an institution. To us here at the Auckland Art Gallery, but also it went to Wellington and was exhibited at Te Papa and um, Following that um, was actually Tamariki, who engaged with the works, particularly one of the Picasso portraits in this exhibition, and made letters and paintings inspired by the works that they saw. And just the amazing kind of sense of art as a playground for our senses and for how we experience the world and the gallery packaged up these letters and these paintings from children and sent them to Julian and Josie Robertson. And that led to them choosing the Auckland Art Gallery uh, as the recipient for this gift. So in 2009, we exhibited a small number of works. And then in 2011, the entire suite of the promised gift was exhibited when the building reopened. In this exhibition that we're in, we're showcasing the gift, which is 15 paintings, largely, by 11 of the most important, really, European modern painters um, of the 20th century, um, amongst other works in the collection as well. So you start to see the whole history of 20th century modernism, from Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, Fauvism, abstraction, uh, surrealism, it's all on show in Paths to Modernity. Josie did most of the advising and the collecting, is my understanding, and bought works to Julian for his appreciation, but also uh, to encourage and expand his appreciation of art. And they were looking at uh, works throughout the 20th century that represented innovations in art throughout those decades. Uh, so it's quite broad. Um, it's right through the late 1800s with their um, early Monet, Duran works right through to the 1960s when you see um, the Matisse, uh, later works by Matisse and so on. Um, but really it, they're focused on European modernism in a very uh, focused way really. The man I met was not the owner of the largest hedge fund in the world. The man I met was a husband, keeping his memory of his life alive by looking at the works that they loved together. 
they called these works uh, their painted children, if you like. And I, what I saw was a man that really wanted these works to go somewhere where they would be as loved as Josie and he had loved them. Um, and so it was very gentle, soft man who was quite clear about what he wanted with his um, with the gift, um, and uh, was really set at, at peace, I guess, I felt, um, in terms of their decision uh, around these works, their painted children. Julian was very organised. So actually, you know, on his passing, we were notified very quickly by the executors. Um, and we sent uh, as a conservator and a registrar from the gallery to New York, where they did what they could to consolidate the works for travel, traveling, making sure the crating and packaging was appropriate, and then literally couriering the works back in a number of consignments uh, via air freight to New Zealand. And then once they're here, our um, senior conservator, um, head of conservation, Sarah Hillary and her team, uh, began to assess the works, assess the frames, and we were able to photograph, document um, all of the work. So on the back of the paintings, you'll see a whole lot of information that tells us about their exhibition history, where they've travelled in the past as well. So there's been an enormous amount of research undertaken by the curatorial team and the conservation team since we took receipt of the gift about 12 months ago, where we've been able to piece together um, a lot of information about where these works have been shown over the years and where they've, yeah, they've travelled. What the gift of Julian and Josie uh, demonstrates, I think, to our business community, but really the whole community, is the power of bequesting. And letting an institution know about your intentions around a bequest during your life, because we've been able to celebrate this um, with the family and with Julian and, and, and Josie when she was alive, um, over their end of life and with them, they could see the impact that this gift was, was having in New Zealand and would have um, you know, in years ahead uh, after them. It's not always a billionaire that makes a uh, transformative gift to an institution. It's often people that may have no um, surviving children to give their life's um, savings to at the end of life. But if they let us know of their intention to give to the gallery, we're able to have a relationship with them and celebrate the impact of that giving um, towards the end of life. So we have people, for example, that might give to home that they've lived in their entire life. Not necessarily um, well-off individuals, but their property might be valuable. That can be hugely transformative to the collection or the work that we do. Um, and also I think for an individual preparing for end of life, how wonderful it is to see your impact and your legacy beyond your life. Mm as you're preparing for end of life. So bequesting is a really beautiful way to make a contribution. This is NBR's People and Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. 
Unemployment ticked ever so slightly higher to 4% in the December quarter. With us is Moody's analytics economist, Harry Murphy-Cruz. Thanks for joining us, Harry. So what do you make of this data and the headline figure 4%? Yeah, I mean, really, I think the data today shows just the resilience in New Zealand's labour market uh, at the moment. So, you know, despite all the pressures that it's been facing, we only saw a very marginal weakening uh, through the December quarter. So, as you mentioned, um, unemployment rose from 3.9% in the September quarter to 4% in the most recent data. Look, markets had expected a bit more of a weakening. Um, certainly, the RBNZ also had expected more and really had actually hoped to see a little bit more weakness come through as they try to fight some of those domestic demand drivers of inflation. Yeah, why wasn't it higher given we've got those rising levels of migration? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the weakening in New Zealand's labour market has come from big population growth that's outstripping general employment growth. But we're not seeing any kind of mass layoffs or, you know, big redundancies come through because, you know, we know that workers um, or employers, sorry, had kind of struggled through the pandemic with trying to find workers. There were skill shortages and a lot of them now don't want to start shedding workers just uh, as we might see that recovery come through towards the back end of the year. What will the Reserve Bank of New Zealand make of this data? Look, it's a real balancing act for the RBNZ. I mean, obviously, they're trying to bring down inflation. They don't want to see a massive rise in unemployment. But at the exact same time, we do need to see unemployment tick up a little bit to help quell some of the drivers of inflation. So, Look, I think they were expecting a little bit higher um, in terms of the unemployment rate coming through. The fact they didn't, look, it may push back um, potential rate cuts um, that we expect to start in, in August. It probably clouds that just a little bit, but I don't think it rules them out. I think we'll continue to see the labour market weaken through this year, likely ending up at around 5% by December. So rate cuts August may be pushed out to, say, November? Yeah, absolutely. So we're still expecting two rate cuts this year, the first coming in August. Um, The data we saw today, it suggests that maybe those demand pressures are going to stay around a little bit longer, but we still think that the labour market will weaken enough for that August cut. Okay. What about the chances of any moves upwards this month? I, I think unlikely. I think we haven't seen the necessary demand drivers to facilitate or to need um, a hike. Realistically, while the labour market didn't um, weaken as much as the RBNZ would have liked in December, it still has weakened considerably from that low point of you know 3.2%. Um, we're seeing you know, youth unemployment rise quite a bit faster. And look, young people, they're absolutely the canary in the coal mine for where the labour market will go. They're often the first to face the struggles of a weakening labour market. We're seeing that now. And that suggests that come in the next couple of months, we should see inflation continue to come down, particularly those domestic drivers, uh, as the labour market weakens. So what do you expect the Reserve Bank's tone to be this month? I I think it'll be much the same. I think it'll still be that the job isn't done, uh, that there Mm. still is, you know, the need for interest rates to stay where they are. And, you know, they'll be particularly looking at the services side of inflation that's been very, very sticky, uh, as opposed to goods, which has come down that little bit more. Um, I don't think they're going to give us too much guidance as to when we'll see, you know, a a set in stone rate cut. But look, we do expect that to certainly be towards the back end of the year. And what's the argument for two rate cuts this year? Why do you have two pencilled in? 
Well, uh, the RBNZ, they went hard and they went early. If you look at it in the global context, the RBNZ really has been at the forefront of lifting interest rates. You know, at five and a half percent, they are one of the highest um, in the sort of global fight against inflation. That means they've been doing this for longer. That means that inflation, you know, has been, uh, that battle has been waged for, for a little bit longer than elsewhere. And households and businesses are, you know, feeling the, the pain from that. We'll also see the Fed likely cut rates in May. Um, when they start cutting, that will uh, likely set the scene for cuts elsewhere. And that includes Australia as well? It does. So, I mean, Australia's fight against inflation really has come along in, in leaps and bounds uh, recently. So um, we expect inflation to keep falling in Australia, ending the year at around 3.3%. Um, we have our first cut in Australia penciled in uh, for September and then another one in December. But the risks to inflation are to the upside, especially on a global setting, especially with recent shipping in the Middle East? Definitely. I mean, we're seeing those disruptions uh, for shipping around the world. That has the potential to push up oil prices, has the potential to push up um, broader shipping costs. That's obviously not what central banks or households or businesses around the world want to see. We still think the progress has been made uh, on inflation and you know disruptions uh, through the Red Sea will certainly or could potentially um, disrupt that, but I don't think it's enough to derail that fight. Harry Murphy-Cruz, thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. Ben Crawford is the co-founder of Branding Shop Tomorrow, which he runs with his sister Libby. The pair first came to public attention when they won the first ever Block reality TV competition back in 2012. So Ben, thank you very much for coming in. Um, You obviously made your name for the general public on television. What was the experience of going through the block like and, and what made you decide to go in to start up your own business? Yeah, I mean, the block was probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but also one of the most rewarding. Uh, you know, winning the winning the show, crazy walking around and seeing yourself on billboards and, and things like that, which is bizarre. Um, but really what it gave us, I think, was the confidence you can do a lot more than you think you can do. Uh, also seeing behind the inner workings of a production like that and just there's a science that goes in behind you know who they're choosing and why they're choosing certain people and how that aligns with a audience demographic and things like that so it was really interesting from a marketing sense around you know it's not just I mean it was fly on the wall but you know there's actual uh, a science and rationale behind it. Um, but what it gave us for uh, starting out a business it was something that we'd always wanted to do our expertise were in marketing um, branding and, and design and we you know had a plan in place to do that it was just having the confidence to quit your job and and make that big step and so winning the block gave us that uh, I guess reason that impetus that confidence to yeah, actually we've got some money we can rely on we can don't have to earn anything for a couple of years uh, and give it a really really good shot so it was a really fortunate starting point for us. Not everyone could work with their sibling for such a long time and such a high pressure in a, in a small business, a startup. Um, how do you guys cope with that? Libby and I have always had a really good relationship. Uh, we grew up on a farm, uh, had a lot of wide open spaces, so we weren't uh, you know, at each other's throats in a little you know, <laughs> townhouse or something like that, so really fortunate to, to have that upbringing. And we've just always had a really open, uh, I guess, trusting relationship of each other, so you know, that's the really strong fundamentals of, of you know, a business partner. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, your business is a branding business. How do you mark yourselves out in a in a very saturated marketplace, really? Yeah, so the design, branding, uh, advertising world is really saturated from an agency point of view. So, you know, we've got a you know twelve plus years now of of a legacy and relationships. So relationships are are really key uh, to that and how we are to deal with. And a lot of those sort of family values, farming values have have come through around. You know, we we do what we say we do, and um, but would never be where we are without the quality of our work. So we're only as good as our our last projects, and so yeah, that um, is really the only way we, we, we stand out as well as the process and, and things we go through with our clients. Just as a general comment, what would you say are the typical mistakes that people make with, with branding? Uh, there's probably two two mistakes that we often see with people uh, starting out a brand um, or looking to reposition from a brand um, if they're existing business. Starting out, often find uh, trying to be too many things to too many people, you know, really wide target audience, you know, spanning 50 years and male, female and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. that can be really challenging and it's not successful if you're not a lot more focused around who your audience is, what the problem is you're trying to solve for them and what your solution, I guess, is, is for them. Uh, then for an existing brand, uh, can be a lot of attachment for whatever reason to the current brand and it can be just an exercise in working through you know what has got the most equity in the brand what should be retained and then you know obviously being a, we've been approached for a reason uh, and so helping kind of work through that process and help a, a business get to where it wants to uh, be going. And you rebranded yourself so you had to go through this experience yourself? Yeah, it was really interesting going through a rebranding of our own organisation and putting ourselves in our clients' shoes. So get a real appreciation of, I guess, those aspects around, I guess, the legacy, the um, the origin of where you got to from a brand point of view, and kind of, I guess, a hesitation around what could be lost if you if you change your name, change your brand, but then sort of keeping in your mind, you know, well, we're changing for a reason. It's in the long term. It's going to be beneficial. Mm, right. And so this competition that you've started running this year a brand for good competition tell us a bit about that yes so the brand for good competition was an initiative we started or launched uh, late last year looking for businesses around the country that are doing good what it says on the box uh, and yeah we're looking to uh, I guess help uh, a chosen business there uh, through their branding process website um, packaging and anything that they uh, are doing. So providing our full uh, services to the winning business, which uh, ultimately we, we chose at the end of last year. That's great, Ben. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Shushine this week takes a look at the ongoing acquisition proposal to do with NZX-listed technology company Raycon. Will Mace is with me to discuss the situation. So, Will, what's been happening over at Raycon? Yeah, well, for those who have or haven't been following, um, in mid-December, Raycon announced that it had received an offer, um, a non-binding indicative proposal, um, is the the correct terminology, uh, in early December. Um, from an unnamed party, and so it was a dollar seventy is the, the the price that was announced. There are really not too many details other than that. Um, at the initial stages, the board put together an independent committee to to assess the offer. Um, since then, they've mentioned that uh, two key shareholders are supportive of progressing the proposal. 
um, and obviously Brent Robinson and the Robinson family who founded Raycon um, and until recently Brent was CEO um, until a couple of years ago when the new CEO Sinan Altog um, took over. Uh, he is a board member. He's obviously not, as a, as, a, as a shareholder member, he's not on the independent committee uh, assessing the proposal, but apparently he is... Um, uh, you know, supportive of, of progressing the proposal, and as well as Seaward Technology, which is another big shareholder. So together, I think they have about 30, uh, 33%, 35%. Um, so their opinion on this um, could be really interesting. So we're, we're sort of waiting to hear um, what the board's going to say. It's been more than a month. So is Raycon attractive to the market at the moment? Yeah, well, obviously it has this offer that's come in, uh, you know, it is potentially a sort of an opportunistic offer. That's what it's been termed as uh, by Forsyth buyer analyst um, who, uh, you know, covers the, the company as, as opportunistic. Um, you know, the, the share price has been said and, and um, shareholders have told me that they feel it's undervalued. Obviously, shareholders would say that. Um, but it has been going through uh, an inventory correction, uh, a, a sort of a slump in earnings based on um, – its main customers, all, all of its customers, kind of ordered a whole lot of stock of these oscillators that Raycon produces um, through the COVID period and the global supply chain kind of disruption. And they're still now, they're working through that inventory, even though the supply chain disruption has eased, um, they're not ordering as much because they obviously they have plenty on the, on the shelves to use. So that has been sort of continuing for the past few quarters for Raycon. So the 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 earnings have been down, the sh- which obviously impacts the share market valuation, um, which obviously has, you know, some appeal to this offshore um, buyer. Um, whether dollar seventy is is you know a good price, um, it's a sixty percent um, uh, premium to the share price. Um, but whether that's something that the board thinks you know out, outweighs the future strategy and the, the future um, prospects of the company, especially when they're looking at AI uses for their for their oscillators, um, they've just come out with a couple a couple of announcements since that um, offer was announced to really detail their use cases within the artificial intelligence um, sector. Uh, you know, and they've also got five G, six G data centers. Their technology is really is used in like some of the most fast-growing sectors uh, in the global economy. So if they can really latch onto those, even more so than they have been doing, I think maybe that's one thing that um, that has weighed on their performance um, over the years is being a real leader in technology research and development and product development, but perhaps not quite accessing the markets um, in a in a in a growing way, in a sustainable way, to really hit their straps. So I think perhaps that's what shareholders are thinking about in terms of this this offer. Uh, if it's from an, you know, it's obviously from an overseas party, it might give them a, a better route into the US markets, into other revenue streams that they haven't really been able to to make the best of themselves. But some shareholders have been unhappy about the way that this proposal has been handled. Why is that? Yeah, um, you know, in particular, Mike Daniel, um, about six six percent shareholder, has been quite vocal, and we've, we've reported a bit in NBR, um, and he he claims to you know have about five percent of other shareholders who are of a similar mind to him. Um, he wants to see. He's a bit frustrated with the the public statements that have been coming out of the company. They're not positive enough for him, um, or, uh, or 
you know, he says negative, but I think he's mainly referring to the attitude of the, the main shareholders. If, if, if the Robinson family and Seaward Technology are against the offer, then there's no point pursuing it. They are supportive of, of progressing the offer, but that's really, um, I suppose, uh, Mike feels like if he could get some more detail out of how they're feeling about the offer, then um, other shareholders might be more certain about you know how this process might go. But there are you know downsides to giving too much information out at this point. Obviously, there's a negotiation still going, still to go on, um, and uh, the company obviously doesn't want to influence the market one way or the other to get people perhaps buying in when there's when the when the um, the transaction may not go ahead or even selling when the transaction will go may go ahead so it's it's a difficult balance I feel and I obviously uh, you know empathize with 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 Mike Daniel um, I think maybe there's a few things we we could do in the capital markets just to perhaps make them a little bit more efficient yeah. so is there, is there potential to do things better here uh, there's there's other regulations that are in effect in other jurisdictions for the UK, for instance, where where I used to cover M and A over there. Um, they have, uh, you know, the mandatory disclosure requirements are the the bar is a little bit lower. So here, there needs to be a certain level of certainty before um, a company, you know, goes ahead and discloses certain elements of a, of a deal or even the existence of a deal. And we did see, um, just as an example, we saw Avida and sort of in, in December last year come out to the market and say that they had received a an offer um, and rejected it before you know they hadn't even announced it publicly um, before they'd rejected it then they came out a month later and said well this is this is what happened and and there was some consternation from investors um, about the fact that they didn't even hear that there was an offer there even though it was at a decent premium to the to the share price at the time so um, there's those rules around mandatory disclosure there's also in the UK they have what's called a pusu or a put up or shut up which basically um, you know a bidder comes in needs to sort of make a solid proposal up front and then needs to firm it up within, I think it might be 30 days uh, in the UK, but obviously there's just a time limit. Time limit could be longer here, but it just get, does give a, a, lim, a, a time limit or a, a, a timeline for the deal parties to work towards um, in terms of firming up the details as well as some certainty to the capital markets and to investors around you know, when they can expect to get information and, and, um, and how fulsome that might be. Thanks, Will. No problem. For this week's look at employment law in our toil and trouble slot, I'm joined by Shelley Eden, director of Shelley Eden Law. She joins me to talk about a recent sexual harassment hearing that was centred on wrongdoing in the workplace, but was actually held in the Human Rights Tribunal. Shelley, what's that all about? So the Human Rights Review Tribunal is a tribunal that's set up to hear um, a few different types of claim, but for example, um, privacy issues um, and claims under the Human, Human Rights Act. Right. Now in this case, this employee did take a claim, a personal grievance claim against her employer, which would ordinarily be held in the Employment Relations Authority but that couldn't proceed because the employer went into liquidation. So her alternative um, pathway, and you do have a right to choose if you've been sexually harassed, an employee can choose either going through the grievance process or the Human Rights Commission process. So she would have taken a complaint to the Human Rights Commission and when that wasn't able to be resolved, she took her claim to the Human Rights Review Tribunal. Right back at the beginning, she took her complaint to the police 
did she go through the normal workplace procedure? Yes, so she she did that, and I think right. that was probably because of the um, the peeping side of things. Right. There was a hole into the toilet, and she was observed whilst she was in the bathroom, and so that is that can get into a police area. But they decided not to press charges. It would have been to do with the evidence, the proof that it was you know this person meeting the police standard, the proof that it was him. Um, but she also did raise a personal grievance against right. her employer. So let's go back and look at what happened in this case. Um, you've talked about peeping toms in mm. the toilet, but this was a particularly egregious case of sexual harassment, seemingly. Yeah, look, I think the, the um, tribunal found that quite a lot of what had happened was at the lower level of sexual harassment, but the problem with it was it was ongoing. This occurred over the course of two years, and it was everything from the most extreme was the peeping incident, the least extreme was getting too close to her proximity, you know, calling her, commenting on her appearance all the time, singing love songs around her, you know, that kind of stuff. So some of which was sexual in nature, some of which maybe less so. Um, but it was because it occurred over such a long period of time, the impact on her, um, and also because he was her senior. So there was, and he was good friends with the owner. This was a small business. He's two IC. He's good friends with the owner. She's the one female working in the company, and he was significantly older than her and more senior to her. And so when you look at that imbalance of power, the, that's why it got quite a high award, I think. And the owner had basically shucked it off to a degree. Yeah, look, I think they had done some things, but it was... It didn't deal with the perpetrator. What they had done is fixed the hole, oh, yay, um, and, um, and also said that no one was to go into her office um, by themselves around her. So the, the owner was clearly aware that this guy was a bit of a creeper and was causing problems and stress for her, but didn't actually deal with the issue. Um, I, I, think the owner would, I think the company would have been in some trouble had they not gone into liquidation. I suspect she would have been successful against them as well, subject to what else was, you know, that would have come out in the course of that matter. So she was given remedies in the Human Rights Review Tribunal. Who pays that if the company's in liquidation? So this was a claim against her colleague. Uh, okay. I think that's one of the really interesting things right. about it. So when she couldn't pursue her employer, she actually pursued the guy personally. So right. it's payable by him. I see. $30,000 roughly. And could she have bought a civil case in a regular court? Uh, no, no. She. It's either employment or through the sexual harassment provisions of the Human Rights Act right. and the Human Rights Review Tribunal. Yeah. So you say that you're seeing an up, uptick in cases of sexual harassment being brought to you. It is astounding to me that these cases are still ongoing. Don't doesn't everyone know by now what not to do? Yeah, like you would think so. Mm. I think people forget their position, their place. Sometimes you know they forget that. Um, it's not actually generally okay to touch your employees, especially not with a sexual nature. I mean, I know we have lots of workplaces that are a bit huggy and touchy-feely, but the thing about sexual harassment of that sort is that it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. If I'm upset and caused harm and stressed and offended by what you do to me, then it's my perception is what matters. I don't have to have complained against you at the time, and you don't have to have known that it was offensive. And so I think that people forget themselves. They forget boundaries, you know, creep people are creepy you know yeah. they'll be that wherever the other side of it though I tend to think is that we have a greater awareness and a work um, work 
employees who are less likely in the workplace to put up with stuff. And I think there's probably less, you know, of a problem if you complain. I, I just think since the Me Too movement, people are more aware. And so if something happens to me that I find uncomfortable, I'm perhaps more likely to talk to my manager about it, more likely to make a claim than perhaps, I mean, certainly back in my day when I was a young person and had various things happen to me, I would, wouldn't have dreamed of making a complaint, wouldn't have known how. And I think fortunately our work um, force has changed now. Absolutely. You talk about hugging, and I mean, there are creepy people, but there are also people who do just give a hug. Your advice, though, is to just not do that. Yeah, look, I take a conservative approach because um, for me personally, when I've employed people, I don't want claims against me. Also, I am an employment lawyer. I should be holding myself to a high standard. But if I, in terms of what I advise people, like... A hugging is not necessarily sexual in nature, but it can be. It can become that or it can feel like that. And I think touching generally of people, like if you don't know their boundaries, there might be, you know, they might have religious reasons for not wanting that. They may just be uncomfortable with that. And do you know for sure that someone is okay? Now, if you do, of course it's fine. A hug, you know, to greet people after a holiday or, of of course it's fine. I'm not the anti-hug brigade. (laughs) But at the same time, how would you know if you're a senior person dealing with the junior person and you touch them in some way that you think is harmless, how do you know for sure that they're actually comfortable with it? And I have seen situations where people touch people and the person is cringing and the person doesn't get it. And I've had people say, you know, no hugs to me. And I think we, it's just around being an awareness of, yeah. you know, what, what and being sensitive to people around you and respectful of them and going, well, look, just because I think it's okay, you know, to do this doesn't actually mean that they think it's okay. Mm. or that, and, and I could be making them uncomfortable. And there's a really easy way to not make people uncomfortable and it's simply not to do the thing that could. Yeah. So, you know, I take a kind of a straight line approach. Like, it's just, it's straightforward. If you don't do it, you won't get in trouble. You won't make yeah. people uncomfortable. The workplace will be more respectful. If you do it, you're at risk. Yeah. In these post-COVID times, it's surprising people still do that anyhow, really. <laughs> I don't think we want to go near anyone, do no, we? No, <laughs> exactly. Um, and the other thing that people, I think, don't always realise is that the person does not have to have objected to the behaviour at the time for it to be considered sexual harassment. That's absolutely right. And I think that's where some people get really kind of, well, how, how fair is that? Like, I could be doing something. I don't even know it's problematic. At the end of the day, if it's sexual in nature then it's probably problematic or could well be. Um, But also it's just the law takes account of the fact that for some people being in that situation, and I think we probably can all relate to that situation if we've been touched in a way or shown a picture or something that we feel really uncomfortable, but it's our boss. You know, we're not likely to go, I'm sorry, I find that very objectionable material. I wish you would not show me that. Very unlikely that we'll manage to do that at the time for most of us or for many of us. And so the law expressly recognises that it actually doesn't matter if you didn't process test at the time. Shelley, thanks so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 